The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 21 and 22. It's a connected narrative. So we're going to read in chapter 21, verses 1 to 7 and 10 to 13. And then in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, 9 and 10, and then 17 through 23. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one else with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us from about, for about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Verse 10, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Chapter 22, and verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Verse 9, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Verse 17, then the king said to the guards, who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep, with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you shall be safe. This time we'll call the kids to the front for the children's sermon. 
Well, the Bible story that we just read reminds us just how much the world hates Jesus. And I want you to know that the Bible reminds us of this in many, many ways and in many, many times. And do you know why? Because it's easy for us to forget. Now, we've learned that David was a picture of Jesus for God's people. By David's life, they learned about what Jesus would do when he came. David was a young shepherd boy when he killed the evil Goliath. No one who saw David believed that he was able to beat this great enemy of God's people. When Jesus was on earth, many people who saw him didn't believe that he was the true savior of God's people. They didn't see how a man who looked like everyone else, who got tired, hungry, thirsty, sleepy, like everyone else, could be the great king, the son of God, who would defeat sin and the devil to save God's children. In the days of King Saul, God's people had no greater hero than David, and that's why Saul hated him. Saul wanted to be the savior of God's people, and when God saved his people by a shepherd boy, well, that made Saul jealous and angry. Saul was like all sinners, wanting to be his own savior. It's normal for sinners to think that they can save themselves, that they can earn their way to heaven by their own good works. And the story of David is in the Bible to teach us that only Jesus can save us and bring us to heaven. In the story that we read today, David went down to a town called Nob. All the men in this town were priests, the special ministers of God who offered sacrifices for the sins of God's children. Now, just as David was a picture of Jesus to God's people, so were the priests. The Bible calls Jesus our king, and it also calls him our priest. He offered himself to God for our sins. That's how we're saved from sin, and that's how we can be allowed to go to heaven. While David was in Nob, a sneaky man named Doeg saw David there. Now, this man Doeg was not one of God's children. He was an enemy of God. And he ran and told King Saul that David had been to Nob. And he also lied to King Saul and told him that the priests were secretly helping David to be king. And that wasn't true. The priests just gave David some food, some bread, because he told them that he was doing a special mission for King Saul. Saul got very angry when he heard Doeg's report, so he went to Nob with a bunch of soldiers, and he called the priests out, <coughs> excuse me, and he asked them why they were rebelling against him and serving David as if David were king. The priests explained that that wasn't true, but King Saul believed that liar Doeg more than he believed God's priests. And you know what Saul did? He told his soldiers to kill all the priests. Now, his soldiers wouldn't do it. They knew that the priests were special ministers of God. They were not going to harm God's ministers. So Saul told Doeg to do it. Do you know why? Because Doeg hated God and his people. He didn't care about God and his priests. So he took out his sword and he killed 85 priests of God. It was as if he and Saul killed Jesus 85 times in a row. They did it because they hated Jesus and his church. They hated David, and David was a picture to God's people of King Jesus. Now, the world sometimes says nice things about Jesus. 
Oh, they say he was a good man. He was a good teacher. But if you tell them that no one can go to heaven except they believe in Jesus, they'll get angry and deny it. They get angry because deep in their hearts, they want to save themselves. If Jesus were on earth now, people would have him killed just like they did when he came 2,000 years ago. If he came to earth every day, the world would try to kill him every day. Unless God puts his love in our hearts, we will be just like Saul and just like Doeg. Aren't you glad that God has put his love in your hearts and made you his children? We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. And may Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. May grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Last week... We noted that Jonathan's friendship stood as a constant reminder to David of God's grace. Because Jonathan was far more worthy of the throne if human merit were the determining factor. The Bible gives us so many stories of David's sins because God was disabusing David and is disabusing us of any notion of salvation by works. Yes, David loved God. Yes, God even calls him a man after my own heart. Nevertheless, we must be made to see and to understand that David's right standing with God was not the result of his own works, rather the result of God's righteousness imputed to David. And with that in mind, we turn to our outline this morning. Our first point we've called a dishonest move. The second point, a shameful move. And third, a fatal move. A dishonest move. Jonathan's presence was a spiritual benefit to David. David had reached an unsafe level of exasperation in chapter 20. In verse 3, a text I occasionally preach at funerals, David says, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. It seems that David has lost sight of God's promise. God had anointed him to be king. No force on earth could thwart God's plan. David couldn't possibly die at Saul's hand. And it took Jonathan's wiser spiritual insight to reassure David of this fact. Jonathan understood that God's promise stands sure despite the temporary appearances of providence. God will take David from point A to point B. But he may walk him through a circuitous and bewildering path to get there. Now that Jonathan is gone, we see David falling prey again to his own carnal weaknesses. He's not living so near God as before. His tactics begin to grow more corrupt. There was nothing wrong with David sensing danger or recognizing Saul's intentions. His sin was that he failed to set this reality up against the even greater reality that God had chosen him as king. He couldn't possibly perish at Saul's hand. You know, when a good man sees himself exposed to danger, danger that he sees no way out of, 
It isn't surprising that he begins to grow weary, worried and fearful. But he's also a recipient of God's protection and blessing. And if his faith will only be active on these points, it'll neutralize the fear. David's sin was that while he fully realized the danger of his situation, he failed to lay hold in faith of God's promises. It was Jonathan's faith that clung to these promises, even though they weren't given to him. After Jonathan leaves, we find David having recourse time and time again to deceit. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that it's quite painful to see a man who once towered over Goliath coming down from such lofty heights to resort to the dishonesty of an imposter. Our text tells us that David went to the city of Nob. Now, Nob seems to be the new headquarters, so to speak, of the church after the destruction of Shiloh. The exact location of Nob isn't known, but Isaiah 10.32 places it near Jerusalem, and that means it couldn't have been more than five or six miles from Saul's capital of Gibeah. David knew that he wasn't out of Saul's grasp here. He was just seeking shelter, probably for the Sabbath day. We see right away that David wasn't safe here because in Nob there was an Edomite named Doeg, the foreman of Saul's herdsmen. He saw David and he saw him speaking with Ahimelech the priest. Now that will become relevant shortly. David did three strange things while he was here. First, he lied about what he was doing. He told the priest that he was on a secret mission for the king, which if it was secret, he shouldn't have told the priest. That for, and this secret mission, he said, forced him to leave Gibeah without supplies or weapons. Secondly, David asked for food. Now, the only food at Ahimelech's disposal was the showbread. The showbread, you'll remember, was specially consecrated bread that was baked fresh weekly and placed on a special table in the tabernacle. Twelve loaves were baked and placed in two piles of six on this table. The loaves were replaced every Sabbath day. The old bread was eaten by the priests and their families. The showbread was a wonderful picture of Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus provides true sustenance for God's people. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Jesus, the one true bread, was represented in the tabernacle by 12 loaves in order to show that though God's people be many, they are organically one in Christ. Now, technically, David was not allowed to eat this bread because he wasn't a priest. And we'll talk about that for a minute. In our gospel reading, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath when they picked corn and ate it on the Sabbath day. Now, the Jews had a horde of unscriptural traditions to which they gave far more credence than Scripture. These traditions were an elaborate system that enabled men to both break God's law with impunity and also imagine that they were keeping it with greater precision than was actually demanded. For instance, the Jewish tradition said that picking an ear of corn constituted work. Well, the disciples even had the temerity to rub it between their hands to break some kernels loose. That was like working overtime. Now, rather than side with the Pharisees, 
Jesus refers to the events of our text in order to correct the heretical doctrine of the Pharisees. God didn't change his law. God didn't change his mind. The Pharisees had misinterpreted the law in order to glorify self rather than God. Now, I said earlier that David was probably seeking rest in Nob for the Sabbath. And I believe that because Jesus referred to this event in his explanation for the proper doctrine of the Sabbath. Unless David was in Nob on the Sabbath, that wouldn't make sense. This wouldn't be an applicable uh, story. Now, Jesus uses this event to teach that the Sabbath, as a sacred and divine institution, is to be a privilege and a benefit, not a task and a drudgery. And this is really reflective of the whole law. 1 John 5, 3 says, His commandments are not grievous. In other words, the law of God is not restrictive and oppressive. The person who thinks so does so because he is a slave of sin. God's law as a reflection of his holiness and goodness cannot be anything but true freedom from the burden of sin. God didn't design the Sabbath to be a burden to us, and therefore we shouldn't make it so to ourselves. As Matthew Henry so eloquently put it, the Sabbath was instituted for the good of mankind as living in society, having many wants and troubles, preparing for a state of happiness or misery. Man was not made for the Sabbath as if his keeping of it could be of service to God, nor was he commanded to keep its outward observances to his real hurt. Every observance respecting it is to be interpreted by the rule of mercy. But let's keep our focus on the main thing. David is given showbread to eat. He and his handful of men who are with him are allowed to eat the old bread that is supposed to be the priest's food that day. And Jesus defends David's actions according to the true intention of the law. Nevertheless, David has done this whole thing under the guise of a secret mission. He has been dishonest with God's priests. Now, this is not an excuse for David's sin. Far be it from me to do so. My point is that this event demonstrates the New Testament doctrine of salvation by grace and not by works. If salvation were by merit, if men were required to earn God's favor by their own works of righteousness, surely David has invalidated all merit accumulated up to this point because he hasn't lied to Joe Blow. He's lied to the priest. Now, it's one of the most common sins of God's people to try and help God keep His promises. When providence seems to be running afoul of God's promises, we are often tempted to force God's hand or to figure out our own way to procure what God has promised to give. And we create a world of woe whenever we do so. Abraham had a child by Hagar, thinking he could help God keep His promise. This impetuous act gave birth to Ishmael and a whole host of tribulations for God's people thenceforth. David comes to the priest with a lie, and as we will see, this lie creates a world of woe. Thirdly, David asks if there were any weapons on hand. Now, the only weapon available was Goliath's sword. It was kept in Nob, I suppose, as something of a museum artifact. It seems to me that there's something kind of significant here. Goliath's sword hadn't protected Goliath. 
David got victory over Goliath and his sword by the grace of God with a slingshot and a rock. And now that David has fallen into the sin of trying to help God, bail God out of a pickle, he turns to carnal weapons and leaves the presence of God's priests with the weapon of God's enemies. And that leads us to our second point, and this will be brief, the shameful move. David now goes to Gath. If you remember, Gath was one of the five Philistine city-states. We've called this a shameful move, and it really is. The Philistines were the enemies of God. Now, David surely thought that Saul wouldn't try to chase him into Philistine territory. But this was really jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. The Philistines were mortal enemies of Israel. David is surely their greatest nemesis, and he is recognized instantly. Because he enters the territory as one seeking political asylum, he gets brought before the king. Now, does he think that he won't be recognized? He's running around with Goliath's sword strapped to his waist. And some of the king's counselors say, hey, this is the guy they sing about saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. So David, thinking on his feet, begins to act as if he were insane. Maybe if they think he's crazy, they won't perceive him as a threat. Eh, he's out of his mind. He doesn't remember who he is and what he's done. The king says, what, you don't think we have enough crazy people in this kingdom? We have to import them now from Israel? And David takes this as his cue to get out. He finds the first opportunity he can to save his life and run away from Gath. It really was a shameful move on David's part. For God's anointed to stoop to such foolish tricks is incredibly shameful. Now, we have not tired of pointing out that David is a type of Christ. And in this instance, he points us to Christ, not by his noble deeds, but by his shameful behavior. He points us away from himself to Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. The Bible says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Herein shines the grace of God. Though David was involved in such shameful sin, though he was acting out of unbelief, God did not revoke his choice of David, either to salvation or to the throne. God's elect are always, as Luther put it, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously sinners and saints. We are justified by faith not by works. And we should draw great comfort from these accounts of David because this reminds us that God in His grace imputes to His elect His very own righteousness. In Romans 4, 4 through 8, Paul writes, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Quoting David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. We now come to our final point, the fatal move. I said earlier that when, whenever we try to help God fulfill His promises, we always create a world of woe. 
This third part of the narrative of our text illustrates this in blood. David flees from Gath as fast as he can and takes cover in a cave known as the Cave of Adullam. David does a lot of running in his lifetime and he's almost always betrayed by somebody. But somehow this location avoids detection. This is the one place that David can always seem to hide and remain in safety. While he's there, a few things happen. First, his family gets word that this is where he is, so they come to visit him. That was surely a great comfort to David. Secondly, he amasses a force of 400 men. You know, when when prices start going up, when inflation skyrockets, when lenders practice usury, when there seems to be no honest recourse to civil magistrates, people get antsy. And David suddenly finds himself in charge of a ragtag army of 400 malcontents. Now, it is a gratifying feeling to realize that you hold power over men's lives like this. And admittedly, this was a necessary part of David's training for the throne. But it also has a dark side. That of responsibility for men's deaths, not just their lives. And David is about to learn that painful lesson. While David is hunkered down in Adullam, Saul hears rumors that David has been in Nob. And here enters the hateful Doeg again. You'll recall in 21.7 that he's mentioned and that he saw David there. The verse seemed a little out of place, but it really isn't. It's there to introduce an antagonist who's going to appear later. Here, actually. Doeg tells David that he, uh, Saul that he saw David in Nob. But he tells Saul more than that. He lies to Saul and says that David asked counsel of God at the hand of Ahimelech the priest. Now, we know that's not true. David gave some baloney story about a secret mission. He got some bread and a sword. That's it. But you must understand that inquiring of God by the priest was considered a right reserved only to the king. If Ahimelech had done this, then he would have been guilty of treason against Saul. That's the real essence of Doeg's lie. Saul and his men march on Nob, and when they arrive, Saul calls Ahimelech and levels this accusation against him. He denies the charge, of course, and he's telling the truth, but Saul doesn't believe him. Saul believes Doeg. Now think about this for a minute, because it is important. Doeg, we are told, is an Edomite. He is not an Israelite. He is an outsider. He is a descendant of Edom, that is, of Esau. Without any personal information, we can safely assume that he is a mere opportunist. He hates Israel and Israel's God, but he can make a good living serving Saul. Plus, Saul is is as much a heathen as he is. Saul, in his anger, orders his soldiers to kill Ahimelech. Well, not just Ahimelech, actually, every single adult male in the family. He counts them all guilty by association. Now remember, Ahimelech is the priest who lugged the Ark of the Covenant around on the battlefield with Saul and who was unable to successfully inquire of God for Saul. Now Saul could have thought that Ahimelech just didn't know how to do it properly, but instead he imagines that though he can't do it for Saul, he can do it for David. Saul's soldiers refuse to carry out the order to kill the Lord's priests. Doag has no qualms about it. 
He cut down 85 men in cold blood. It seems that his evil example must have emboldened the men because while they were hesitant to kill the priest, they didn't bat an eye at killing every other man, woman, and child in the city. But one man, a priest named Abiathar, managed to escape. He fled to Adullam to David. And when he recounts to David the slaughter that has just taken place, David knows that he bears the responsibility. He remembers seeing Doeg in Nob when he was there. He knew who he was and what he was capable of. And instead of warning the residents, he ran off hoping that nothing would become of it. Now that all these people have been slaughtered, David has to face the fact that his actions have been the occasion of so many people's deaths. And this, too, is a sad part of his training as king. As king, he will inevitably have to make decisions that may result in men's injuries or deaths. And even now, before he ascends the throne, he's brought face to face with this grim duty. David essentially adopts Abiathar. He welcomes him into his little band of misfit raiders. And from then on, Abiathar serves David as priest. That's as if God has now allowed David this privilege. David isn't king yet, but he has a growing band of man and a divine right to inquire of God as if he were already crowned. Now, there are several biblical motifs that I suspect that you've already noticed in this story. First of all, it reminds us of Pharaoh's slaughter of the Hebrew babies. Pharaoh's edict was time to kill Moses, the future deliverer of God's people. The story also reminds us of Herod's slaughter of the babies of Bethlehem. This was time to kill Jesus, the deliverer of God's people. Thus, this story also reminds us of Judas Iscariot, betraying innocent blood into the hands of the Pharisees. Like Doeg, Herod was an Edomite. Pharaoh, like them both, is a type, a representation to us of the wicked world power that sets itself against the Lord and against his Christ, the evil seed of the serpent that is at perpetual enmity with the seed of the woman. This teaches us the importance of the antithesis. You see, you might think that there's no danger in having an Edomite as the foreman over herdsman. Surely that's far enough away from the inner circle of the church's life. But our story shows that this is incorrect. He was in Nobd, the priest's city. He was over the herdsmen. Now that can only mean one thing. He was there to supply the priests with animals for sacrifice. An Edomite in that position is a disaster waiting to happen. He supplied animals for a people he hated so they could worship a God he hated, and he did it for money. And when his livelihood looked to be at risk, 85 servants of God were mercilessly cut down, martyred on the false witness of this Edomite. Now, there are three very practical applications for us this morning. First, we must remember that Doeg's treachery and Saul's unconscionable treatment of God's servants are exactly what we must always expect from the false church and from the world. Neither are our friends. If they ever treat us kindly, it's a ruse. It's like the anglerfish holding out what looks like food only to make you its food. 
A doeg in the church it will always result in the merciless slaughter of God's people. There is no compromise with the world that does not come back to bite us. Despite the face it puts on, the world is uncha- unchangeably hates Christ. And if it hates Christ, it will hate us too. We set ourselves up for a world of hurt if we expect anything else. Secondly, while God's grace is sufficient for all our sins, our sins do have effects. And these effects may be felt far and wide. I've recently read some heartbreaking stories of teens who are now suicidal because of decisions they were coerced into when they were younger through the combined influence of twisted, perverse teachers and spineless parents, impressionable young children were submitted to body-destroying surgeries, the so-called sex change operations. When the fanfare died down because they weren't, you know, their heroic deed had become normal, the kids realized what had been done to them and can't be undone. And now, 15-year-old kids realize that they will never grow up married and have families of their own. And the depression that these children feel drives them to desperate measures. Make no mistake, on Judgment Day, God will call doctors and teachers to account for these tragedies. But I assure you, dad and mom are going to face the full, unquenchable, burning hot wrath of a furious God. These children were entrusted to their care, and they became willing instruments in the destruction of their own offspring. But let's assume the best possible outcome. Dad and mom repent. The youngster repents. Doctor repents and discontinues his practice. Teacher repents and leaves the profession. All parties involved repent and believe savingly upon Christ. That doesn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The young boy's life is still, his body is still destroyed. David can feel sorry for his lie to Ahimelech. And he can repent of it. And I mean sincerely, truly repent of it. Nevertheless, Ahimelech and 84 other priests are still dead, killed in cold blood. It is only by the grace of God that David can live with himself and later assume the throne. Thirdly, we learn the importance of graciousness regarding the sins of others. We never find Jonathan harboring a grudge at David because Saul cussed him out and threw a spear at him. We never find Abiathar purposely misleading David as revenge for his family's death. What God had forgiven, they could forgive too. When we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we are asking that God be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us our transgressions or our original sin. And furthermore, we are professing that the evidence of God's grace toward us is that we feel in our own hearts a firm resolution to forgive our neighbor. Nothing that anyone has ever done to you is as bad as your least sin against God. God has given you existence, life, a family, a livelihood, 
a roof over your head, food in your belly, and air in your lungs. God owes you nothing, yet He has bestowed all these gifts upon you. <clears throat> you have surely never given even a fraction of such goods to any fellow creature. Your least sin is a greater affront to God by an infinite degree than the greatest sin of your fellow man against you. And the graciousness of Jonathan and Abiathar teaches us this very important lesson. Let us pray.